You're listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, brought to you by the Raven Creek Social Club, where we talk about faith and other oddities. For questions, comments, or to be part of the conversation, join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find us at Raven Creek SC. Now for your hosts, Emily Dixon and Nathan Underwood. Well, everyone, welcome back to Faith and Other Oddities. Back in the studio, we just finished up Christmas in real time. Right. Um, Survived it. <laughs> yeah. This this uh, this episode's actually going to go out pretty soon to when it records. Normally, we've got a, a few weeks between them. But yeah, we just got done with Christmas. It was good. Had a good time. Uh, got to relax a little bit. And so. Yeah. After uh, two, what, two surgeries with baby girl and all the chaos that followed it. So mm-hmm. we're here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And uh, as, as many of you know, my wife's a music teacher. And so we had performance after performance um, that I work at the same school. So we had a lot of setup, a lot of teardown that I was helping with. It was completely nuts, but it feels like it's been forever since we were in the studio, but it mm-hmm. actually has not been that long. No. <laughs> it's only been a few weeks. So yeah, so we're excited. Um, we're getting ready to roll into 2020. Um, this is the last episode of the year. Yeah, and we made it a whole year of recording this podcast. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, and then some. Yeah. Because we started in October. This is crazy. Yeah. But so. we appreciate the people who are listening who are encouraging us to stay at it. Yeah. Um, yeah, one of the things that uh, we recently heard, uh, Emily has heard from a couple people who uh, have been saying that they want to use uh, some of the podcast stuff for some church uh, Some of them already small are groups, uh, which is just blowing my mind. Um, yeah. So thank you for that. That's very encouraging. We're glad that the information is useful, mm-hmm. um, and that we don't go on so many rabbit trails <laughs> and uh, and uh, you know which which don't that it's that it gets too confusing. So right. Um, so yeah, thank you so much, and uh, we're looking forward to a great year in 2020. Yeah, because that's a huge compliment, and it's a good reason to keep doing this. Mm-hmm. So. That's, I just wanted to say that up front because it's, you know, that, that, that's the kind of stuff that keeps us going. So if, if you're enjoying the content, the content, please uh, let us know you're enjoying it because that does encourage us. Because there has been a, a few times <laughs> when it, the, just the, you know, during the busy parts of the year where I think, why am I doing this? And then, uh, and then I see we get some new subscribers or a new comment or, or something. And a it's message. Like, and yeah, then it, yeah, private message and, and. It kind of go. It kind of makes me go. Oh yeah, we're we're doing this because people are are hungry for this kind of content mm-hmm. that they're not getting in other places, and um, and so it kind of reminds us of our of of our mission, which is to be that spot between the pulpit and the academy right. where people can hopefully figure some stuff out. Exactly, and then I really hope that people pick up the stuff and just go further. Mm-hmm. That this Absolutely. just kind of is good groundwork for for further study. Yep. Yeah. That, well, yeah. Always, always try to go farther than than what your teachers are doing. <laughs> but that's a whole nother topic for a yeah. whole nother day. So that that being said, I think we should probably get to it. We we're still done with Samson. We're in the middle of uh, Micah and the Levite. Mm-hmm. We're getting ready to move on to the second part of that story. Yeah. And I, I do apologize because it is post Christmas. There is some uh, Christmas assembly going on in the background, so you might hear a little bit of hammering here and there. I'll try to catch as much of that as I can in post. <laughs> But just know the kids are having a great time and, uh, you know, just we roll with it around here. Yes. Yeah. So and now we're in Judges 18. Uh, like you said, we just finished up uh, the first part of the Levite and, the, and Micah. And you'll remember that Micah had the 
the uh, Bet Elohim? Was it the house of the God or the one true God or a house of gods? And he had all the religious paraphernalia hanging around and he had added the Levite to his collection. Mm-hmm. So, so, yeah, I, I do find that kind of funny because it does seem like you, you were talking about how the, the Levites had kind of become like this good luck charm where at the end of the, the was the chapter of the section, uh, yeah, the end of the chapter 17, where he says, now I know the Lord will bless me because I have a Levite for a priest. Exactly. And I think this is good setup for um, actually the following chapters after this particular story. And I think it helps us understand the Levite and the concubine mm-hmm. story. Yeah. Well, and I, something that I just, as I was saying that it kind of occurred to me was, was, uh, you know, that, that, that's something that we kind of need to think about too, is because oftentimes we think about in our, our ministry groups, I know that I think about this sometimes, like if only we can get an editor, I can really, we can, I can really dive into the, the content, then we can really do some good stuff. Or if only we can do this, or if only we can do that, um, Let's not, you know, it might be a good warning for us not to fall into that kind of trap while we're thinking yeah, right. about it. You know, if only we had a bass player, our worship services would be better. If yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, but we do that. And, you know, even with this, we've said, oh, if we could have this or that, it would be better. And mm-hmm. right now it, it really is a matter for us, but I think for everyone being responsible with the tools you're given. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the Levite, what, or sorry, Micah was given the tools. The tools yeah. were the Torah. Yep. And if he would have just followed those laws, which really aren't that many, I know we tend to think of them as being major oppressive laws. They aren't. It's 613 laws for establishing an entire country. Mm-hmm. We have more than 613 traffic laws. Right. Can you imagine? I don't even know what the number of tax laws we have. Oh, my gosh. And the 613 laws <laughs> covered all of that and religious observances. Mm-hmm. So there really wasn't a lot for him to have to keep track of. So, you know, be faithful with the tools you're given. I think that's the big takeaway there. Yeah. So, but this chapter, when it opens up, there, there's a major shift. And it, it's the writer using that, that technique of trying to keep you off balance once again. And it doesn't seem like it's related to the previous chapter at all. And we're looking at a new portion of the population. We're now looking at the tribe of Dan. We're looking at the regular people. We're looking at people who have, um, you know, they're oppressed. They're, they're not the upper echelons like we'd seen with Micah and the Levite. And we are going into a chapter that's been deliberately de- designed to remind us of the conquest of Canaan. And matter of fact, you can line it up almost point by point. Well, that's actually, so I was, I was reading through this and I, I did notice that because they talked about they sent out people to spy out the land and look mm-hmm. at things. And, I, and I'm kind of looking at this going, well, this gives you kind of an idea of the fact that people are still kind of settling. They're yeah. still they're still working out, you know, establishing themselves in the land as well. So that kind of gives you a, a an idea that there's in history it, it, there's not a lot of time that's really passed that mm-hmm. that shows how quickly the the corruptions uh invaded Israel. We're going to have one major clue and that's going to be at the very end of the story and the the writer deliberately holds it back until the end of the story to shock us. So you kind of get sucked into this kind of narrative where you're going along, you're going, oh, yeah, I've gone through all the judges. I've gone through all the events that's gone along with the judges. And then, boom, this hits you in the face right at the end of the book. And it's to remind you that things are moving a lot quicker than you might have thought they were. Sure. So um, we open up the chapter with our phrase, in those days, there was no king. Now, there's no, the ending part of that is gone. Right. You're supposed to already know. Right. 
And so um, when the verse continues, it says, And in those days the tribe of the people of Dan was seeking for itself an inheritance to dwell in, for until then no inheritance among the tribes of Israel had fallen to them. Now, already we've got major problems, because this is Judges. Everything is a major problem. And Go ahead. Yeah, I, I, I was wondering about that, because I couldn't remember which tribes had inheritances and which tribes didn't. I, you know, because... Mm-hmm. It was you know, chapter one. Right. Well, and that's the thing. They were given an inheritance in chapter one. We know that God had set aside land for them in chapter one. Mm-hmm. The key word there is fallen. It, no part of Canaan had been conquered by them. And they had failed to drive out the Amorites, who they were supposed to overthrow in order to totally inhabit their land, but they hadn't done it. Okay. And so they wind up in this kind of little squeeze play between Benjamin and Judah, two pretty sizable tribes. And then the Philistines are another portion of the land crushing in on them. And so it seems rational. It seems reasonable that they would actually move to a different place. But, you know, that's not what God told them to do. And this is, this is the problem, you know, when we're trying to rationalize what we should do according to our own understanding, our own wisdom, we wind up getting into trouble. And that's what's happening with Dan here. Right. So in verse two, they select five able-bodied men. Um, this is to remind us that of the, the 12, tri- uh, 12 spies who mm-hmm. went into Canaan, like you were saying, and these five able-bodied men, a better translation would probably be more, be more uh, noblemen. Okay. They were the aristocracy because when we talk about the tribes going into Canaan, we're talking about princes of the tribes is Mm -hmm. one way it's translated. So, um, you know, these were pretty influential guys. And they're from the lands of Zora and Eshtael, which, if you remember, those cities are from Samson. Right. So I remember Samson. He's a Danite. So they explore the um, they explore the land and. they're going through the hill country of Ephraim, and this brings them right into the same place that we were thinking about. Uh, well, Micah and the Levite are there, obviously, but we also think about going into and seeing Rahab, the prostitute. Well, before we get into that, okay. I, just, I, I think that's interesting because I hadn't put together that it was Samson was the Danite, and you, it says no inheritance had fallen to them. Mm-hmm. And if this is after Samson, then this just goes to show how little Samson actually did yes. while he was judging. Yeah. Because if he was supposed to be going in there and, and clearing the land so that they could take over their inheritance, mm-hmm. it, we're, we're saying in spite of all the stuff he did, he still didn't even go in and take the land. There was no land taken during the time of the, the judges because... None of them, they were able to hang on to what they had, but there mm-hmm. was no advances made. They were not strong enough, even with all of this great blessing and divine favor poured out on them. They still were not strong enough to fulfill the mandate to take the land. Right. And they weren't able to rally the people around them the way they needed to in order to raise the armies. The only one who raised a significant army were, there was Deborah. Gideon. And Gideon. And there was uh, Othniel mm-hmm. and, and Ehud. But after that, no judge is, you know, there's nobody sizable. Jephthah has some, but he still doesn't have a huge army. And we even looked at the numbers there and how his armies were small armies in comparison to those he was fighting. Right. So, but when the, sorry, the comparison here, Micah, he's got idols. That's compared to whoring throughout uh, judges. Mm -hmm. So you have Rahab, the prostitute. 
and Micah, who is fulfilling this, this role perfectly, mm-hmm. he's just doing it in a spiritual sense. So once again, we're reminded that this well, is... Well, I mean, not necessarily just in a spiritual sense, because if we're talking about idol worship, you know, there's, you know, you have a priest and mm-hmm. there's possibility that he's orchestrating all the stuff that goes along with it, you right. know, temple it, prostitution and things like that. Especially since they are mimicking the, the traditions of the Canaanites around them. Mm-hmm. And they, they're not following the Torah. But once they get to Micah's house, the, these five able-bodied men, they hear a voice that they recognize. And it's kind of a weird exchange that goes on when they're talking to this, this voice that they recognize, because it's the Levite. And you really have to ask, how do they know who he is? Right. Why do they recognize the voice? Is it, uh, do they know him personally? Well, yeah, especially if they're the aristocracy. Mm-hmm. And they pretty much just interrogate him <laughs> yeah well and you know did was it a, a dialect kind of thing where they they recognized his accent and went mm-hmm. why are you here because they do they why are what, what are you doing here what's going on that you are in this place and uh you know the the levite he answers he, he by saying micah has fi- has ordained me literally has filled my hands to be his personal priest and Right off the bat, this conversation takes a left turn that it shouldn't take because the, the Levite should have told the Danites, you need to go home. Mm-hmm. You're in the wrong place. He's not doing what he's supposed to be doing as a spiritual leader. And we're seeing this guy really has no view of what God has commanded the nation to do. He really is about self-preservation, mm-hmm. about self-promotion. And he, he has no respect for the law. Right. And he doesn't even have any respect for himself because as a Levite, his job was to guard the law. And he's not doing that. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, he kind of almost in the speech that he gives them, and that is verse four, he almost sounds like he's planning an idea in their mind. He's kind of, you know, that he paid me enough. Micah paid me enough. And this mm-hmm. is why I'm here. So, you know, maybe. And the, the Danites, in verse five, they go to him and they say, hey, well, you know, they're still in the conversation. I guess they don't go to him at this point. But they, they ask him to inquire of the Lord. And they want to know if they're going to be successful. And he, they don't ask for him to inquire of Elohim. They ask, or, sorry, of Yahweh. They ask for him to inquire of Elohim. Mm-hmm. So again, we don't know. Are they, is he inquiring of the God of Israel or is he inquiring of the gods? Right. So where's the Danite's heart in all of this? That's wide open for, you know, speculation. Well, I mean, if, if, they're, if they're setting out to, to spy out land, then mm-hmm. they're, you know, I assume they're getting ready to try to take it, mm-hmm. which means that they're not really necessarily motivated by the, the best of terms. No, they, they are very much, um, you know, they, they feel like they're in a hard place. They feel like they're in a place of desperation, just like Micah was with the, the idols and the things that he'd collected. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, there's a thing about desperation that can lead us to disobedience and we can justify it all we want to. And it can sound really good in our own ears. Yeah. E- even if they're saying that they're, they're doing the thing that they're supposed to be called to. Yeah. We can definitely go about that the wrong way. <laughs> Well, and this little exchange is the reason why um, I mentioned earlier that in Micah's collection he had an ephod and that this was probably not the same kind of ephod that Gideon um, had created, that this was more of the ephod that we would have seen on the high priest in the temple with the, the jewels and the breastplate to, yeah. 
try to divine the word, the will of God. And this is, um, you know, the, the Levite does try to tell them what God, or supposedly tries to tell them what God is saying about their mission. And so we think what's going on is they saw the ephod and said, oh, he's capable. And so this question was probably a test. Can he really hear from God? Is he able to use this thing? Sure. And, you know, the, the Levite, he answers, and it's a typical psychic TV show answer. Go in peace. God's, the eye of God is, you are under the eye of the Lord. Sorry. You are under the eye of the Lord. And he actually uses Yahweh at this point. So the, the Levite uses the proper name. And th- this, this man, answer means nothing. I mean, right. <laughs> go in peace, the eye of God's on you. What, what does this even mean? Yeah. And the JPS says God views your mission favor- favorably. So it's a little different translation there. Yeah, that's not real close to the Hebrew. I think it keeps with the intent. I think that the, the Levite was attempting to make it sound like it was going to be a, you know, something God viewed favorably. And sure. that, but I don't, that, that's not in the Hebrew. I think the Levite still has enough maybe fear. I don't want to say respect. I don't get a lot of respect out from this guy and the character, but I think maybe there's still enough fear that he's like, mm, no, I'm not going to completely lie, but I will kind of bend the truth because the problem is they can't go in peace. Mm. They've already broken the covenant. They are not where the covenant demands that they should be. So when you break covenant with God, you can't go in peace. The other thing is, of course, God sees them. I mean, this is like a no-brainer. I did right. to see. What does, like I said, what does this even mean? But of course, the Danites, they see it as favorable and they continue onward. So um, we're in verse seven now. And it, so just, just yeah. to be clear, uh, the Danites are seeking out land that's outside of their inheritance. Is that? Yeah. I, the, I, I don't think we ever mentioned that specifically. Okay. Yeah. Um, they, I think you just, you mentioned the priest should have told them not to be there. So. Is it basically they're fed up trying to get the place they were supposed to conquer? Yeah. And now they're looking for some some easier uh, pickings. They were they were feeling squeezed out by Benjamin and Judah on either side. They the uh, Philistines were moving in, and you know we saw that with Samson in his day that the Philistines mm-hmm. were coming in. So they they basically felt like they didn't have any option but to leave. Okay, that when makes the, sense. Yeah. With when the truth is, if they had actually carried out the mandate God had given them to begin with. There wouldn't be a problem. Okay. That, so yeah, I just want to make sure that that I was following everything the way I was supposed to. No, oh, it's been a long Christmas. It has, uh, yeah. So, um, verse seven, it says, uh, and I'm actually going to read this verse because there's a lot of information in it. It says, "Then the five men departed and came to Laish and saw the people who were there and how they lived in security after the manner of the Sidonians, quiet and unsuspecting." lacking nothing that is in the earth and possessing wealth and how they were far from the Sidonians and had no dealings with them. Now, Laish is a very interesting city and the writer doesn't include a lot of definitions or um, explanations about the city in Mm. the book because you were expected to know it. I mean, he's not, the writer's not expecting us to be sitting in Oklahoma you know, thousands of years later reading this book. He didn't write it specifically to you and me. (laughs) He did not think of us once. I mean, you know, maybe an afterthought later, but no, no, I, he, he expected the people he knew, the people he interacted with to be the ones to read it, not the whole world. And so Laish is, 
a city at the source of the Jordan River. So it's very far north. It's about 29 miles north of the Sea of Galilee, and it's prime farmland. And it, but most interesting, it's located at the foot of Mount Hermon. And so if you know anything about Mount Hermon, you know that this is going to be a very interesting place. We've talked about it before. According to the Book of Enoch, this is where the uh, watchers or the fallen angels from Genesis 6 who took the women, where they were imprisoned after God punished them. This is also the place where Jesus takes Peter later and um, has to talk with him about at Caesarea Philippi. Sorry, can't talk today. At Caesarea Philippi, where um, he tells Peter that the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. Right. And so this is a really powerful place. It's a place that's packed with a lot of significance and meaning. And the fact that Dan would decide that this is where they want to live is telling you something about the people. Because this is not, you know, this shouldn't be someplace you want to live. Right. <laughs> and so they, they lived after the manner of the Sidonians. The, the plot thickens even more. This means that they probably lived under the protection of the Sidonians. Okay. Now, the Sidonians were 30 miles away. So even though they were under the protection, you know, 30 miles is a long way to travel when you're walking or on a horse. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, a little bit more than 30 minutes. And um, it's one of the most influential Phoenician cities there is. This is also the home place of Jezebel. So to kind of give you an idea of, we're talking in an evil location. Okay. And in the Old Testament, locations could be evil. There there were places that the land itself was was corrupt. Now, we've excavated Leish. Uh, Not us, but, you know, the the people who do it. Yeah, the people who do it for a living. Um, they will probably debate whether it's actually for a living or not. But anyway, this city has massive defensive ramparts. Uh, it's got alternating, uh, alternating uh, layers of soil and debris that are built up that allow them to have you know, just these major defenses that were totally different than the stone walls of the Canaanite cities, mm-hmm. but they were highly effective. They had three defensive towers. Three mud brick archways, which would have made anyone approaching the city have to go through those archways with archers on either side of them. Mm-hmm. And um, this is all dating back. The archaeology is all dating back to this period. Interesting. Oh, yeah. So for its time, it's one of the most advanced cities around. It, okay. It's even more so than probably Jericho. Now, put that into the equation when God brought the people into Canaan and they, they walked around Jericho, he caused the walls to fall. And, you know, they saw that as a city that was going to be difficult to take. Right. The Danites look at the city and go, we can take it. A a city that's even more advanced than Jericho, we can take it. And this mindset is so backwards to what it should be. And it's not, (laughs) it's not the kind of thing that we would expect them to say, because always before, whenever there's been any kind of military uh, conflict, Israel's always, they've either rushed in full of faith, full of fire, or they've run away. Right. But there's no faith here. And so we don't expect the fire. And I have in my notes that I should read verses eight and nine. And it says, and when they came to their brothers at Zorah and Eshetol, their brothers said to them, what do you report? And they said, Arise, and let us go up against them, for we have seen the land. Behold, it is very good. 
and will you do nothing? Do not be slow to do not be slow to go to enter in and possess the land. Now, compare this to what went on with the 12 spies back in Joshua. All right, back in um wasn't Joshua? <laughs> I totally forgot. I can't remember which one. But when they was. entered into Canaan, and you know, there was 12 spies, fortified cities, you had the sons of Anak, you had giants and they said, we can't do it. We're too small. We're too weak. We, we, there's no possible way. And here the reporting, the reception of the report is completely reversed when it should have been the other way around. What should have happened was when God took them to Canaan, the, the whole nation should have said, yes, we can do this. We've seen the miracles in mm-hmm. Egypt. We've crossed the Red Sea. We know our God is mighty. He's going to take care of us. Let's go forward. And instead the people said, no, we can't do it. Now here, Dan, completely separate from God, goes up to the city and says, hey, we can do this. We're, we're totally capable. And so we're seeing this reversal of what happened and what should have happened and how at this point in time, they're having the correct response to the wrong situation, mm-hmm. where before it was the wrong response to the right situation. Yeah. And I do find it is interesting. They do say that God's delivered it into their hands. This is another time in Judges where we see success does not equal approval. Okay. And I think. Well, yeah. yeah. I'm sorry. Go ahead with, <laughs> yeah. your, with your point. Well, I, I think this is something we need to bear in mind. Just because someone or something is successful today does not mean that God approves of it. Sometimes God allows people to have exactly what they want. And, you know, it's kind of the old adage, you know, give them enough rope to hang themselves. Right. And this is really what God is allowing them to do. And, you know, it, it's, it's so weird that this is the way the people are attempting to take hold of a promise God had made them because it's so counter to what God had commanded them to do. Mm Because they're saying, God promised us prosperity. He promised us a home and we're going to go get it, but we don't want the one he's going to give us. Right. And how often are we like that where we say, I, you know, God's promised me good things. He's promised me, you know, a job or a house or what have you. Now I'm going to go get it, but I'm going to do it my way. And we still attribute it to God, even though we may have lied or cheated or stolen to get it, mm-hmm. instead of just, you know, relying on God to, to be faithful as we're being faithful. And, you know, that's a hard thing to do. I get it. I'm not saying that it's easy, but th- I think this is a warning against that kind of attitude. Sure. And I see it all, the, all over the place. No, that makes sense. Makes sense. So they sent, you know, then they, they send, this is verses 11 and 13, they, they send a ridiculously small army. Mm-hmm. They send 600 people against this amazingly fortified home, so, or city. And this army of only 600 people, it, it should not have been able to overtake the city. So there seems to even be some divine intervention to help them take the city. Okay, And, you know, there's no mention of God being involved, but it almost feels like God had to be involved or it wouldn't have happened. And that's what allows them to think, to think that this is some kind of approval on God's part. And I think this is one of the things that we have to watch, that just because something works out, you know, things are in our favor, that we don't automatically go, oh, well, it's divine intervention. Or that, oh, this is what God wanted me to do. So um, there's, there's some really good principles for us to look at in these stories. So 
the other mention, the other um, little thing mentioned in here is that they actually took their families along with them. They were so confident that they are going to win that they take the women and children. Hmm. There, there's no, there is nothing in this that's held back. It's that full on attack. I mean, they, everything that they were missing in the conquest of Canaan is present in this conquest of Elish. Yeah. So we, they're going to take the city, but then we have this, this brief, this very brief um, interlude where they stop over to see Micah. And they, this is where they, um, they decide to actually stop and talk with the Levite. Mm-hmm. And uh, they point out, the, the five spies, they point out to the other Danites, you know, hey, he's got all the stuff. Mm-hmm. And he's got this ephod, he's got the idols, he's got a Levite. And they make this very suggestive remark. And it's, they said, this is verse 14, the ESV says, now therefore consider what you should do. What does the JPS have? Uh, 14, it says, do you know there is an ephod in, the, in these houses a ter- and teraphim and a sculpted image and molten image? Now, what do you have to do? Yeah, what, what do you have to oh, do? Oh, now you know what you have to do. Sorry. Okay, so the... You shouldn't the, ask me to read out loud. I'll, uh-huh. I'll miss a word. Yeah. <laughs> it's not one of our bigger skills. Uh, but... Uh, you can do the, it in my head, but... <laughs> yeah, you don't have to actually pronounce, pronounce see, uh, sorry to yep. say, pronunciate all the words. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. that one. Yeah. Okay. So, um, so the JPS is making it more directive. Like they actually said, this is, this is what you need to go and do. Mm-hmm. The ESV makes it more of a, now you think about it. it it's more of a Godfather moment in, in the. Well, it's, it's just, it's weird to me that it's like, well, there's all this stuff. It'd be terrible <laughs> not to just go take it, even though it belongs to someone else. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the attitude it seems to, to present in the, the JPS. A, a brother, a, a fellow Israelite, and, you know, he doesn't really need it. But, you know, the thing is, what they should do they, was not go take it. What they should do is actually laid out in Deuteronomy 17, 1 through 7. And it says that if anyone makes a graven e- image and worships it, that person should be stoned. But the mm-hmm. implication is that in that Deuteronomy uh, 17 is that the, the image is not Yahweh or not one for Yahweh. Mm-hmm. So we've got some problem here because we've had the question all the way along, who is the image for? Right. It, it, is Micah worshiping Yahweh or is he worshiping some other God? Because all the indications seem to be that he is trying to worship Yahweh, even in the middle of this. Right. And does he know any better? I mean, the, we already see the Levite, he's not being a great spiritual leader. Mm-hmm. and you know, there's grace for sins committed in ignorance within the Torah. So should he be stoned here? That's, that's the question. The question isn't whether or not you should steal it. It's like, do you correct him so he can quit being in sin? Or do you stone him if he refuses to repent? Right. I mean, that's, that's the question that they should be entertaining, but they don't do that because they decide that they're going to rob Micah. Well, and you, and you talk <laughs> about how success does not necessarily equal approval. I mean, when you go and you see a house with wealthy people mm-hmm. that has a collection of, of idols, presumably either cast in or covered in, in precious metals mm-hmm. um, with a priest on staff. Right. Well, what are you going to see? You're going to see a, a successful operation. Mm-hmm. And so then you're going to think, 
oh, well, these guys must be doing what's right because look at how well they're blessed. Yeah. And I think that's, um, it's really interesting because, I mean, you see actually counter to, well, not really necessarily counter to this, but you see, you know, when we look at like wisdom literature, mm-hmm. um, we see that, uh, in, in Ecclesiastes, you know, I've seen, I've seen evil men profit in their, their evil. And I've seen good men struck lay, down, struck down, yeah, struck down in their righteousness. And, and so it's, it's, it is really interesting, um, that that we see that here where you know works kind of this theme we've been working on this whole time you know just because or not not necessarily the whole time but the last few weeks of just because something's successful doesn't mean it's a good thing which which kind of is an interesting parallel to well it's almost counter to deuteronomy because deuteronomy god says if you do the right thing you're going to be blessed and if you're going to do the wrong thing then you're going to be cursed Mm -hmm. the the thing is these blessings and curses don't always play out immediately or in the material. Right. And, and so that's, Oh yeah. And, and so, but now I was thinking about that how that's actually, you know, the, the conversation right now is, you know, there's so many conversations right now, <laughs> you know, so many conversations about, well, should you do this? Well, it's, you know, well, it's legal, you know, and we talk about how we shouldn't take what's, What's legal and what? <laughs> what's legal and what's right? Aren't yeah, always are not always synonymous, and I, that's kind of what I'm seeing is you know with the success not equaling God's approval, um, you know, as you know as bills and laws pass and fail throughout different legislators, just because they pass doesn't mean it's a good idea, right? Well, and this is where I think um, you know just like the Levite and Micah and the Danites don't seem to be concerned about what the Torah actually says. You know, how many of us as Christians have actually said, okay, I need to study God's word to figure out what I need to do next. Mm-hmm. I need to study God's word to know how to live. Mm-hmm. We, we go, oh, well, you know, I'm going to just pray for God's blessing and I'm going to do what I'm going to do anyway. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I've been guilty of that. And it's an easy, easy mistake yeah, to fall you, into. We all fall into that at some point. And, and then not to, you know, I don't know if we want to go here, but not to step on too many toes. <laughs> But, you know, there's, there is, you know, then there's also certain pastors in the world who tell people, hey, if you give money to my ministry, God's going to bless you. And there's, here's the evidence. Well, yeah. God's blessed me. Uh-huh. Yeah. Because, <laughs> you know, it, and it, and again, I don't want to get necessarily too far into that, but, and I'm not saying that that's your church, but there's churches out there. <laughs> right. Not, you know. Well, and okay. And I feel like, okay, if we're going to bring this up, uh, I think we need to point out that for every multi-million glitzy glam mega church you see on TV, mm-hmm. there are dozens, if not hundreds of other small little churches that are never going to get news mm-hmm, coverage. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They're never going to have a TV show. And with, they- with faithful pastors, mm-hmm. with, yes, we're not, we're not down on organized church. Right. You know, we, but do what's right mm-hmm. regardless. Of, yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I'm with you. That that is a good point because we do we do tend to me and you tend to rag on the uh, <laughs> the, the the mega church who well uh, you know they're easy targets and sometimes you just need a brain break but you know it, we've also seen you and I grew up with pastors in the family mm-hmm. and we know that you know, it's a hard hard job and most often in, especially in this part of Oklahoma a pastor isn't just preaching on Sunday he's fixing. The, the plumbing on Monday, mm-hmm. the roof on Tuesday, he's doing visitation on Wednesday, he's business meeting on Thursday. Mm-hmm. I, he, he's running it all. And usually without even so much as a secretary, 
And right. so right. this is, it's a hard, hard job. And the men and women who do those jobs, they need to be acknowledged because it's, it's not easy and they get forgotten. And when people bash Christians, they forget they're bashing these people too. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I never want to overlook their contribution because a lot of times those same people are working with, you know, the youth, they're working with mm-hmm. the food pantries, they're doing all the stuff behind the scenes that the church should be doing. Yeah. And so. But that's fair. Yeah. yeah. But okay. So now that that little rabbit trail has been, been chased. Um, when the, the Danites get there, they um, decide after they have this conversation with each other and they consider what they should do, which is robbery, uh, they station. <laughs> yeah. I, it's like, I don't understand how you get to this is the right conclusion, but go ahead. <laughs> yeah. Well, and this is the point of judges. You, when you do what's right in your own eyes, then you come up with these crazy things. And they station the 600 men outside the, of Micah's house. And, you know, these are kind of like the thugs standing around just for intimidation purposes. They mm-hmm. don't engage in anything. And they send the five spies inside and they go and they take the goods. And the Levite says, hey, what you up to? Mm-hmm. I mean, <laughs> that's pretty much. He, he doesn't try to stop them. He, he, yeah. just, he doesn't say, you should probably stop taking all the riches <laughs> here. He says, hey, what's, what's going on, guys? Yeah. And the Danites, I love the the phrase in Hebrew is literally put your hand on your mouth and they tell him basically shut up be quiet and and they think he he's going to do this they're okay with the idea that he's going to be quiet they're not worried that he's going to alert Micah and um, they ask him to go and be their father and their priest and in verse 19 they actually ask him is it better for you to be a priest to the house of one man or is the priest of a tribe of a clan in a, a tribe and clan in Israel? So do you want to be important in this guy's house or do you want to be important on a larger stage? Mm-hmm. And you know, we already know the answer. We don't even have to read any further to know what the Levite's going to do. Right. Because we <laughs> see it over and over and over. <laughs> right. And, you know, it, in verse 20, it tells us his heart was glad. And this is where he goes from being like just a casual observer to an active participant. He's like, oh, this is what we're doing. So he grabs the ephod and the household gods and the carved image, and he goes along with the people. Uh, He he plunders the house of the guy who has been like a father to him. Mm -hmm. He takes this guy's most important possessions, including himself, Mm -hmm. and gives them to strangers. So, you know, this... This Levite, he's so corrupt that he's willing to not just, you know, take advantage of a stranger. He's willing to hurt somebody who said, you know, you're like a son to me. Mm -hmm. So you're kind of getting an idea of how bad um, this guy really is. And when he when he goes with them, he doesn't just go like along with him. He like goes to the center of the caravan. He puts himself right in the middle of it. And he's. He's doing two things when he does this. He's, he's claiming his position among the tribe because now he's going to be the spiritual center, the spiritual hub of this clan. But he's also saying, hey, I'm willing to hide behind the skirts of women. So, you know, he, he's not, he's, there's nothing honorable about this guy at all. And this is the ultimate betrayal. I mean, mm-hmm. he, he really, I, I don't think we can just, I cannot describe how much this appalls me. and. But the Danites, they, they arrange the can- caravan so that the armed men are in the back because they figure, hey, Micah's going to come after me. And they're right. And when Micah catches up to the Danites, uh, he calls out to them. And their response to him 
is, you know, what's the matter with you? What, what, why are you bothering us? You know, kind of like, yeah, we took your stuff, but, but why are you throwing a fit about it? You know, this shouldn't concern you. Yeah. <laughs> they aren't. No real outrage. <laughs> it's, I don't know. It, it's yeah. even the attitudes are wrong in yeah. the story. It, it just, it just <laughs> baffles me to no end. It's like, yeah, we have your stuff, but what? Like, yeah, it, this what? is just the way the world works. You, you should realize this by now. And it, they're so casual about it. But I actually, I, I find Micah's reply to be very heartbreaking. He, he says, you know, you take my gods that I made and the priest that I anointed and go away. What, what do I have left? What, who am I without these things is pretty much what he's asking. You know, I, I had my whole sense of identity and self-worth was wrapped up in the fact that I had these items in my home. And, you know, he had, a, had gods that he could control and possess. And he was the patron of the shrine that was filled with all these sacred objects and he, the Levite to serve as his priest. And, you know, nobody's with him now. He mm-hmm. has nothing now. Even his family's been a disappointment. I mean, where's his mom after the initial event? Reimbursement. Yeah. The sons, where are they? The, the pe- there's people in the town who've come along with him to, to help reclaim these objects. Mm-hmm. But when, when it comes down to anything else, we don't know anything about him. Was he a farmer? Was he a merchant? You know, what else did he have to hold his, his identity together aside well, from the shrine? a rich family. Yeah. I mean, there was that. But I do think it's, it's kind of interesting because he says, without these things, who am I? Yeah. Is what it says. Mm-hmm. And it. And uh, at least I think that's what it said in the JPS, but it's without these things, who am I? And so his, his whole identity was wrapped up in his possessions. Yeah. And not only his possessions, but if he had people coming with him, you know, was he afraid that they would abandon him if, if he didn't have stuff? Well, they do. And so. When, yeah. when, when he turns back to leave, it's just him. Right. And, and that's the thing. Everybody abandons him when he no longer has all the toys to play with. Mm-hmm. And. You know, this is the danger of self-made religion. This is the danger of a religion that you can control and that you can manufacture. If you can make it, it can be taken away from you. Sure. And this is why you've got to have faith in something greater and larger and and can't be just, you know, somebody walks by your house and says, hey, what do you think? I mean, and theft of a religion happens in so many ways. It's not just in taking the paraphernalia. I mean... How many Catholic churches have, were plundered over the millennia, centuries, mm-hmm. because they had, you know, they had treasure, the great works, works of art. But did that take the faith of the people? Right. And, you know. That's that, just, well, that's, yeah, that, that's a good point. Yeah, the, the faith remained. Exactly. And, you know, in spite, because, yeah, we have so many lost artifacts that. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> yeah, don't even, because those artifacts all had story in history that helped us understand various times. So whether I attribute any supernatural value to them or not, historically, they were mm-hmm. amazing. Yeah. And, um, but th- that's the thing with this, this Mike, he, he's realizing that he has placed his identity and built his identity on something that cannot sustain him. Mm-hmm. And this is so, what's so important that we as Christians, we've got to know who God says we are and we've got to put our faith in him. Otherwise, you know, identity gets shaken, and I, I won't go too far into that, but there is so often that we put our, our 
faith and build our identity around our favorite teacher, our favorite preacher. Mm-hmm. And those are just idols of different kinds. And we need to watch doing that because if our faith's not in God and, you know, sometimes even I've, I knew this was true for me. Okay. I didn't mean to go here, but I know this was true for me, but at one point, um, when I was going through the divorce and everything was so crazy and the church was seeming to fail me, mm-hmm. I had to realize that my faith was in the church and not in God. Now the church is great and God ordained the church and the church is supposed to be disseminating knowledge and wisdom and fostering relationships. Sure. But sometimes the church fails because it's made up of human beings. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so making sure always our faith goes back to the one true source and not getting, you know, getting distracted by the stuff around us like Micah did. Mm -hmm. Because everything he had was something somebody else in his area and region had to help them serve their gods. Right. So, okay. That makes sense. (laughs) I'm I'm kind of, this is... There's so much in the story that I want to just like really, really just like go off on. So sure. I'm having to control myself. But, uh, you know, the Danites threaten Micah and he backs off. I mean, if the if the idols and stuff weren't able to protect themselves in his home, then are they going to help him in this battle? Yeah. Well, in that, in that exchange is kind of weird, too, because it says, you know, don't shout less. How's it worded there? <laughs> Let me find it. Um, don't do any shouting. Or, um, don't do any shouting at us or some desperate men might attack you and your family and you would lose your lives. And I think that's a real, I mean, that's, you got kind of that mafia thing. It's like, you know, we got a lot of guys here. Yeah. And, uh, and they're even saying we're going to do it. It, It's somebody. Yeah. There's a lot of, there's a lot of people around and maybe if there's shouting, they might, they might think they're in trouble. Yeah. You know, it's that kind of attitude. Very vague threats, very veiled threats. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there, there's there's no direct engagement of the issue by the Danites ever. Yeah, it's like that the nice nice family you got there. It'd be a shame if anything <laughs> happened to them. Pretty much. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, very thug-like. Um, but yeah, and that's in verse, in, in verse 26, you know, they you kind of get this feeling for how broken Micah is because he does leave alone and he is the only one who leaves. It's the the men who had gone with him had already scattered. There's no mention of them. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, wow, he did lose everything. But lest you forget, this chapter or the previous chapter opened up with Micah being the thief. Mm-hmm. And so the thief gets his just reward. And the one who who benefited from from the theft because he did benefit because when he stole the money from his mother he used it to make the graven image mm-hmm. which went into his shrine where people came and worshiped and probably brought gifts to him to help him continue caring for the shrine gave a sense of importance you know everything seemed to be good he mm-hmm. was an important guy it was successful and now it's being taken away and it took a while to get there and all along, there seemed to be approval and it seemed to be that God was working to make things happen for him. Mm-hmm. And then out of the blue, he's lost everything. And so there is, we, we do see a little bit of that justice being served right. that so often is missing in the book of Judges. So in verses 27 and 28, the, the Danites, they do capture Laish. I mean, like most stories in, in the Hebrew Bible, when we talk about travel, uh, all the, the boring bits are cut out. We just get to the bare bones of the facts. They, they go in, they kill the people, they burn the city, and everything went according to plan. 
and they, they rebuild their city and they name it Dan. Now, the thing is, by, by going in and killing all the people and by burning the city, this is what they were commanded to do back in chapter one with the Amorites. This should have happened. Say that again. <laughs> I got distracted with the... We've got some background noise there. We've got Sorry. some cheering going on. Okay, so, say that again. Well, the, the burning of the city and killing the people should have been what happened with, in chapter one with the Amorites. Right. And the, if they would have done that with the Amorites, they wouldn't have be having to do this now. Sure. But now they're, they're here at Laish, a place God didn't even want them to go or tell them to go. And, and they're doing exactly what they should have done. So this tells you that everything that should have been done in chapter one could have been done. They did. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I, this is what makes it so crazy because if they could take 600 men, which there are way more of them than 600 back in chapter one. Mm-hmm. And cause we have census numbers from, from the book of numbers. Right. So we know there was way more of them. This makes this all the more devastating because you go, well, why didn't you just do it right the first time? Because if you'd done it right the first time, you could have saved everybody a lot of heartbreak and a lot of problems because then you wouldn't have had the Amorites living in your land. And if the Amorites hadn't been living in your land, then the people wouldn't have become Canaanized and they wouldn't have turned away from God. And, you know, and the list goes on and on about what the repercussions were for their failure to, to do this in chapter one. So um, this is... This is to remind us that God did not tell them to do something they were incapable of doing. Right. And or that he was incapable of making happen. Yeah. Yeah. And this, and this victory in Leash is not a victory for Israel. As a matter of fact, it's going to cause some major problems all the way into the book of Kings. It, it, it becomes a central place for idolatry where mm-hmm. they, they live. Uh, they have their own shrines, and we're going to talk about that later on in a further study. But just know that this continues to cause problems for centuries. Hmm. So um, in verse 30, we're told that, hey, the Danites set up the graven image, the idol made from silver, and, you know, that the thief had made in his attempt to, to buy off God now becomes one of their central items of, of worship. And the Levites become this, this Levite and his sons become the priest of Dan. And... It's at this point that the writer decides to shock us. Okay. Because he tells us that this Levite, who up to this point has not had a name, is Jonathan, the son of Gershom, son of Moses. So this is a direct descendant from Moses who has been in the middle of all of this. Mm -hmm. This is a direct descendant of Moses who never corrected the people. Now, can you tell me that this guy was not trained in Torah? Right. (laughs) You know, his, his dad was around. When Moses was on Sinai, mm-hmm. his dad walked through the desert and ate manna. And, you know, he probably grew up hearing these stories. So this tells us that within less than a hundred years of being in Canaan, this is the point that they had sunk to. Right. And I think hundred years is probably being a little generous at this point. Sure. Yeah. But this is how far the corruption ha- has spread. And, you know, we shouldn't be surprised because in chapter 2, verses 6 through 10, we learn that the people, the the elders had stopped teaching the people the truth of the Torah. They'd stopped teaching the people what had happened in the desert. So we know that this started almost immediately, Mm -hmm. but this gives us an idea of the depth 
Mm-hmm. So we knew it was going on before. Now we know that it's got an impact in a major and massive way. Yeah, which, which again, kind of leads, you know, we're talking about a little bit about the timeline, which kind of leads me to think a lot of these stories are kind of stacked on top of each mm-hmm. other in the timeline. They're not just sequential. But mm-hmm. when we read it, you know, it is easy to think we're 19 chapters in. Mm-hmm. We might have forgotten, like, how close we actually are to the beginning because that's that's a decent amount of separation on these. I mean, e- right. Well, and the other thing, too, is this story probably happened closer to chapter two. Sure. And this probably didn't happen after Samson. This probably happened sometime, um, you know, around Othniel, Deborah. And so these the thing is, it was saved at this point in the book to make a point. And so this right. is this is a literary um you know, an editor, an edited version of it to editorial decision. Yes. Thank you. Uh, to, to try to make the point that yes, we've had our eye on the judges and we've had our hope in the judges all the way along, but here's what they were up against. Mm-hmm. And this is what's going on in the people you aren't paying attention to. And really history books wouldn't be paying attention to these people because you know, Micah, who is he? Right. You know, he, he's a nobody. And yeah. No. Well, and that that kind of makes sense because because I and I, I kind of look at it as as two ways. One is is it's you know we've been looking at the judges, and you know and especially if we go with was it Block who was who is kind of saying this was written to counter the idea that the king was responsible for mm-hmm. uh, the corruption of the people. Yeah. And so we've got this kind of sifting down. Where it's like well before the king there were the judges, mm-hmm. and they weren't responsible for the people being corrupt. Right. Or the people were just as corrupt under the judges, but wait, even a layer beyond that, it's the religious leaders. And beyond that, it's just the people. In yeah, general. it's the individual because everything comes back to individual responsibility, and which is kind of unusual in Judaism because there is this very communal, uh, collective idea of sin and its impact. Mm-hmm. But if the individual is sinning, then they are impacting the entire nation. And that's, that's a problem. And so we, you know... It, if we carry that principle through today and, you know, are we as individuals adding to the problem or helping solve the problem within our own country? Right. And so that, that's a whole thing we could get onto. But I've got like three more pages we're going to get through before I let you shut us down. Uh, not, so I'm, I know. You do your thing. I'm... <laughs> because, no, it's really interesting that the scribes were so appalled that this was the grandson of, of Moses. And I, I should clarify. This could either actually literally be the grandson of Moses, mm-hmm. or it could just denote that Moses was a grandfather uh, somewhere in the line. It, it didn't right. have it, to be a direct... Yeah, they might have skipped mm-hmm. some of the less noteworthy uh, yeah. descendants. But given the way things have played out, I do tend to lean towards that this really is a grandson. That's my opinion, so you okay. take it for what it's worth. But the the the, the, the scribes were just... They could not believe that Moses' grandson could be this corrupt. Right. And so they did something, and you will very rarely hear me say this. They tampered with the text. Okay. So um, the thing is, when a scribe tampers with the text, they let you know they've tampered with the text. So it's like, I'm going to fix this, but you're going to know what was here before I fixed it. And what they did is they offered, uh, um, added in a little superscript noon, so a little tiny noon up above the rest of the letters that was inserted in the name of Moses, 
So instead of saying Moses, it looked like it said Manasseh. Mm -hmm. And we've talked about how this was probably written in the days of Manasseh. And even that's a lesson that the only way this Levite could be so corrupt was if he, he wasn't the son, grandson of Moses. He would have had to been the grandson of Ma Manasseh. And Manasseh was a horrible, wicked king. Sure. And we talked about that in a previous episode, but we'll talk about him more when we get into Samuel. Or actually, if we get to Kings. But um, okay. well, we don't know if we'll get there or not. But Who knows? Eventually. Um, but they did not want to attribute this kind of evil to a descendant of Moses. Right. And so I, I want to acknowledge that because it is kind of funny because you very rarely see this kind of blatant tampering with the text. Sure. But even at that, and, and this is a good reminder for people who don't read Hebrew or Greek and they go, oh, the Bible's been edited so many times. It has. It's been translated and copied so many times, but there have been safeguards put in place, particularly in the Middle Ages. But the, the, the scribes, what they often did, if there was a mistake and something needed to be rewritten, they would put brackets around it. They would make some kind of notation so that you knew that, yes, they had changed it, mm -hmm. but here's what the original was. So you could compare and contrast. It's not, it's not like there was some kind of cover-up. As, well, this is with the Hebrew in particular. Well, and, and I, I wasn't planning on talking about this, but uh, this is a thought that I had the other day because we talk about how people will talk about how scandalous it is that the Bible has had different uh, manuscripts that mm -hmm. don't necessarily agree. And what I find really funny is the people who are most shocked by that tend to be fundamentalists. Mm -hmm. King James only crowd. Well, not necessarily King James only crowd, but. They tend to be fundamentalists who insist that people can't get anything else right. Right. <laughs> so why would they get this right on the first try? Yeah. I mean, that, I, mean I understand we, we can talk about the power of the Holy Spirit and inspiration, mm -hmm. but at the same time, it's like, why is this, you know, I understand it's, I understand it's, we're, it's our, authorita our authoritative book, but at the same time, really think about applying the same logic you do to the auto-writing uh, view of Scripture to anything else. Okay, so here's my question for those people is when did that Holy Spirit God-inspired protection stop? Was it with the advent of the printing press? I mean, because <laughs> it, according to that logic, every Bible that was written should also be completely accurate. Mm -hmm. And we know that's not the case. Uh, there's actually one called the Adultery Bible where... It, they left it, out not. Yes. <laughs> that should... Thou shalt commit adultery. Yeah. Um, there's there's one. Oh, what was the one? There's there's one that I believe it actually condones eating your own children. <laughs> okay. Uh, I saw somewhere uh, there's there's it is some of the the printing press errors are pretty ridiculous. Yeah. Well, and okay. Now here's the thing too. When we want to talk about discrepancies in um, manuscripts, a lot of times what people don't realize it might be missing a definite article, mm -hmm. like a single letter. Oh, well, there's a discrepancy. Uh, it could be a breathing mark. Oh, there's yeah. a discrepancy. And these are the things that, you know, yes, textual critics do count those up and they tally those up and they might say 3,400 and whatever. You know, I'm making up a number here. Yeah. Discrepancies. But when you look at what those discrepancies are, they're they're not that big. And by the way, I have And most of the time they don't change the the message no, of the overall sense. Not at all. And you know, there's a few bigger things that we could go into. We might do that as an episode at some point. Could be fun. But um We need know, to find a textual critic. Oh, well, I've got a, yeah, that would be fun. Because 
that's not my area of expertise, but I do have in my home, I do have like the parallel gospels where every Greek variant is cataloged. Mm -hmm. And so I can look at that. And you know what? I bought it on Amazon and it's available to anyone who can read Greek. It's not some kind of conspiracy. And you can see what the distinctions and the, the... and Bible scholars aren't the only people who read Greek. Right. That's the other thing. Yes. It's not like it's some kind of secret <laughs> yes. the church has protected and kept Precisely. people out of. Precisely. So. Well, and for centuries, Greek was just part of the standard high school curriculum, believe it or not. Right. So. Well, yeah. Well, we, as interesting as this is and fun to discuss, this is our hobby horse, and we have gotten out on a few times already in, okay. the, in the series. So let's let's move on. Sorry. <laughs> okay. So uh, the the... the the Levite and the Danites, they're living in this new city, and they stay there until, uh, it says, the day of captivity in the land. The, the problem is we don't know exactly what that means. We've got two options. It can be when the Assyrians, mm-hmm. and which is 734 BC, or it could be after Shiloh uh, ceased to be the main place of worship. So, Would it not have been like the Babylonian, or would that have been the southern kingdom? Uh, don't ask me. I'm, I haven't slept since. I've slept too much, so... Uh, we'll go back to that. So, okay. yeah. I, I was just curious. I, I, would assume, I assumed it was probably either the Assyrian or the Babylonian captivity. Yeah. The, the main point is that Shiloh had ceased to be the place of worship and Samuel had died. And that's, we know definitely by then they, they had, um, they survived Samuel's lifetime in this place. Mm-hmm. And that's the important part. And it's always going to be marked as idolatry. Uh, in 930, Jeroboam would install a golden calf to be worshiped there. So this became a place actually that Israel felt that it needed to clean up as a nation. It's like, no, our family's out of line. We got to straighten things up. And this causes some problems. Mm-hmm. So um, they, they've got an, a, very, a very interesting history that has allowed us to have some very skewed views of Judaism. Matter of fact, when you talk about God having a wife, some mm-hmm. of that comes out of the Dan area. So, okay. it, you know, this is why when people bring that up, I'm like, eh, eh, it's not even worth my time, really. I mean, it's an interesting historical curiosity beyond that. It, right. Yeah. People were constantly messing up how to serve Yahweh. The Bible is very right. clear and records that. <laughs> uh, uh, so you found another way people screwed up. Congratulations. Yeah. Well, yeah. yeah no, there, there was some article you I don't know if you posted it on the Raven Creek page, but there was some archaeological discovery of the evidence of, of ancient Israelites worshiping gods other than Yahweh. And you're like, this is not news. Right. <laughs> I mean, there's we know plenty this. of, it's, it's on record, guys. It's, yeah. it's in there. Well, they did be- it. That's the beautiful thing about our book is God never covers up the problems with his people. So, uh, but verse 31 it says, and so they set up Micah's carved image and he, that he made as long as the house of God was at Shiloh. So the writer shows us, I mean, this is genius. I know it's, it's hard to, to see here in the English. This is the first time we have Shiloh called the house of God. And he does not refer to it as the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, or, uh, you know, any typical name. It is the house of God. Like Bet Elohim? Bet Ha Elohim. Elohim. So when they add, I'm working on it. (laughs) Yeah, you're close because Micah had Bet Elohim. Okay, and so that was House of God or House of Gods. We don't know. It's it's ambiguous. The writer here makes it disambiguous. He says House of the God. Okay, okay. So 
the writer uses this really great trick to remind us that Shiloh is the one true place of, to worship the one true God. Mm-hmm. And any place else, if you try to to worship God in a way that is inappropriate in a place that he has not commanded you to worship him, then you're looking for ruin. You're looking okay. for destruction. And that's exactly what happens. And by using that phrase, he's bringing us back to the beginning of the story with Micah and reminding us that all this stuff happened. And so, so he's even, he's even saying, he's even commenting saying, this is why this one city is so terrible. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's, it's great writing. And it's one of those few places where knowing the Hebrew does give you a lot more to dig into. Sometimes Mm -hmm. the Hebrew just gives you a little more to dig into. But this is one of those places that gives you a lot more to dig into, and the theological messaging comes through so much clearer because you read it in the original language. Mm. And I, I love the fact that the writer has used these little tools all the way along, not just because they give us greater depth to the message, but it shows us that the people of Israel were educated, mm-hmm. they were cultured, and they were smart. They were very, very smart. And that means the writers of our Bible were very very smart sure and gives us reason to inte- trust the integrity of this book overall well i mean who is it is it cahill uh, saying that the the pride of the the jewish nation is uh, or the, uh, israel throughout the years has been the education of their children mm-hmm. yeah um, because they the education was was such an important part of the everyday mm-hmm. life not mm-hmm. just not just the greek idea of school which yeah was all fun little fun <laughs> bit of trivia is that school uh, our word for school is uh, scola uh, is where we get that from, which is actually a term for leisure time. Well, yes. Because if you had enough time to just sit around and and philosophize or whatever you do, then you were you were rich. So well, and that's actually that has some basis in in Judaism and why we have the Sabbath because mm-hmm. only free men, not slaves. Can you remember this was a nation of slaves? Right. Had the ability to to stop and study. Yeah. And so yeah. Okay, more trivia added on to the rest of yeah, the text. A little bonus trivia at the end. <laughs> well, um, so we're a bit over, so we should probably wrap up this mm-hmm. week. I saw you put down your last page I of did. notes, so uh, we got it all in there. Um, yeah. So. <laughs> now we're getting into, we're moving into the most gruesome One of the story. most graphic stories in the whole Bible, um, which is pretty wild. So um, everyone get ready for that. Uh, we'll be cracking into that uh, next week for you in a few minutes for us. Um, <laughs> More coffee uh, first, please. Yes, I'm excited to see where this one goes because there's, this is one of those that you read it and you're like, why is it in the Bible? Yes. Um, so probably don't let your kids listen until you've previewed next week's episode. Yeah, because we don't even know what we're going to say. <laughs> right. But if you do want to be part of the conversation, uh, hit us up on ravencreek.com or ravencreeksc is where you'll find us on all social media. Um, that's Twitter, Instagram, and the Facebook mm-hmm. um, will be there. Um if you like what you've heard, um, please consider writing us a review or give us a rate, give us a rating on iTunes. That helps people find mm-hmm. us. Um, but the best thing you can do, of course, is share with your friends. Um, that always goes a long way. Absolutely. So, everyone, thank you so much for being a part of this. It's been a really interesting year here in 2019, and we're looking forward to <laughs> but seeing. Did you die? <laughs> but but we're looking forward to seeing what comes along in 2020. Uh, we we're hoping for for some good stuff and. Uh, We are glad to be here with you. So anyway, thanks for joining us and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, a Raven Creek Social Club production. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. 
If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on iTunes or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash ravencreeksc. As always, thank you for listening and don't forget to join us next week.